this is still an issue for voters. They, you know, can we trust what the Conservative Party say, and what, and particularly, what do we think of a party that, in the end, put into office somebody whose interpretation of the COVID regulations was largely at variance with pretty much everybody else's interpretation, and who then basically didn't seem to was willing to tell the truth. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Sir John Curtis, polling expert and professor of politics at Strathclyde University. Sir John tells us what the polls say about net zero, immigration, and whether Scotland stays in the UK. One of the ironies of the 2014 Scottish independence referendum is that the parties on both sides of the debate spent an awful long time arguing about whether an independent Scotland could or could not be a continuing member of the European Union. And in true pantomime fashion, the unionist side said, oh no, you can't, and the yes side said, oh yes, we can. They were both wasting their time. He also explains why pollsters sometimes get things completely wrong. There are all sorts of fashionable theories about that, and not least the, the favourite one amongst journalists is shy toys. People telling pollsters lie. But I'm sorry, it was much more prosaic than that. You know what? Why were the polls too pro-Labour? Because they had too many Labour voters in them. But then you need to understand why. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Sir John Curtis, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're welcome. One of the hot topics at the moment is obviously net zero. What are the polls showing us about that? Well, they show us a number of things. I mean, number one is that there is very widespread concern about climate change. Around 75% of people say they are concerned about it. Um, and there is widespread support for the target of achieving net zero. That said, though the figures are a little bit lower for those who voted Conservative in 2019 and those who vote Labour. So we get the beginnings of a sign of a bit of a gap. Second thing they do show, however, is that certainly in current circumstances with the rising cost of living, um, some polling suggests that people are saying, well, but to be honest, I can't really afford to pay more in order to help to deal with the cost of, to deal with climate change at this point in time. A third thing it does show, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, is that once we move away from the ways of dealing with climate change that are relatively popular, so the things that are relatively uncontroversial, are basically the production of energy for electricity through sustainable means, so wind farms, solar panels. This is now widely accepted. Um, indeed, also the idea of perhaps subsidising people um, in order, for example, to help them get heat pumps, which was part of the Prime Minister's announcement for England, although it was only catching up with what the position in Scotland um, was about. That's also relatively popular. You don't get that much difference between Conservative and Labour voters. But once you get down to should you tax people in order to, for example, dissuade them from flying? Or should we start banning things or you know, implement, implementing limitations? Then it becomes more debatable. And you certainly see that then Conservative and Labour voters begin to disagree to some degree. So if you take, for example, uh, the specific issue that was perhaps was the headline of the Prime Minister's uh, a recent speech, um, uh, which was the banning, which was the proposal to ban the sale of uh, 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 petrol and diesel cars by 2030. Um, only around 18% of Conservative voters were backing that idea in a poll that was done just at the beginning of August by YouGov. Whereas amongst uh, Labour supporters, the figure was in the, was in the high 40s. Um, so you can see the gap there, and we shouldn't be surprised because, in a sense, although 
everybody wants climate change addressed, there is still a debate about how best to do it. And that debate matches on the traditional division between Conservative and Labour. You know, Labour Party voters tend to be more sympathetic to the government intervening uh, towards perhaps taxing people a bit more. Conservative voters are less inclined in that direction and perhaps rather more willing to rely on voluntary action. Uh, now, that's a much broader debate in our society. It you know, has long predated climate change. And I think we should therefore be aware there's always been the potential for the climate change issue to uh, be part of a division between Conservative and Labour, at least in terms of implementation, because it feeds that traditional divide. I mean, all of that, so to, to us, there's a, there's a sense in which, at least so far as Conservative voters are concerned, you can see why the Prime Minister might hope that he improve his party's popularity. But of course, there is perhaps one question we need to ask, which is, for how many people will the cost of living be lower by next October, assuming that's the date of the, of the election, than would be the case before Prime Minister's speech. Now, I think apart from those people who were uh, inclined to put in a heat pump very quickly, it's not clear that it's going to make a difference at all because the, the costs he was pushing back, and you know, rhetorically he's in tune with the electorate, but the costs he's pushing back were essentially potential costs sometime down the track and not ones that are necessarily going to go this side of the election. So whether or not in the end this is going to persuade voters that, in this way, the government has helped to address the cost of living crisis. I think on that, potentially, the Prime Minister is on somewhat softer ground. Right. Do you think this is going to be one of the, the big issues when we come to the election? Well, look, um, the United Kingdom faces a lot of very substantial problems. Um, we have maxed out our credit card, as was demonstrated in the reaction to Liz Truss's budget. And, you know, we've got... Um, we're running a, a, a government debt at around 100% of GDP. Um, we've got pretty high levels of taxation by our historical standards, and we also have very high levels of public spending. Trouble is, that public spending is not accompanied by efficient health services. We've got uh, uh, satisfaction with the health service at a record low over the course of the last uh, 40 years. The story about the concrete in some of our schools that was crumbling in a sense was at risk of becoming a symbol of, of a crumbling Britain. Um, so we've got, and of course we've got inflation, we've got, we've had living standards falling over the last 18 months or so, maybe that's now just about, just about to stop. So there's a very wide range of problems. And then yes, of course, the United Kingdom, along with the rest of the world, faces what most scientists regard as the existential threat of climate change. Now, of course, it's so happened in the United Kingdom, almost uniquely in the Northern Hemisphere, we did not experience any weather-related events inside the United Kingdom. But ask the people of Hawaii, ask the people of Libya, ask the people of Spain, uh, even parts of Russia, is climate change happening? Well, they're particularly attuned to, it, attuned to it at the moment. So we have to be aware that events, dear boy, events in the form of climate change events, uh, again, uh, uh, could put it up the agenda. But, you know, so in other words, it's not going to be the only issue in the election, but almost inevitably it's going to be a issue, not least, of course, um, because so far as the Labour Party is concerned, their argument as to how they think they can increase Britain's economic growth is through embracing the green agenda uh, and building infrastructure and taking what they regard as opportunities uh, to take economic growth there. Now, I think it has to be said, some of the polling suggests the public have to be convinced that, that actually 
climate, dealing with climate change will be economically beneficial or not, but I think certainly we can expect the Labour Party to pursue that argument. What about immigration, both legal and illegal? What do the polls show the public think about that? Well, they show a number of things. One is that both Remain and Leave voters uh, are pretty much uh, accept that legal immigration has not fallen in the wake of Brexit and that indeed, if anything, it is now higher. Indeed, the court statistics show that it's higher. And of course, um, although the government didn't trumpet it at the time, when we came up with the rules for entry into the United Kingdom after Brexit and came up with the same rules for people who were coming from the European Union as for those who are coming outside the European Union, what in practice we did, yes, we made it much more difficult for the European, from the European Union to come here because they no longer had uh, freedom of movement, but we actually liberalised the rules for those from outside the European Union. And that, together with um, special arrangements for people from Hong Kong because of the concerns about the position there, and of course, obviously, Ukraine, has meant that, uh, in, in combination, all of this has meant that we have uh, indeed have been running record levels of immigration, which is not what Brexit about. But of course, its character is different and, and, uh, and perhaps maybe ironically and certainly notably, it's rather more ethnically diverse as a result than it was before Brexit. So the truth is legal immigration hasn't delivered what Brexit was meant to deliver. And to that extent, at least, it's difficult to see how this is going to be an issue on which the Conservatives are going to make much movement. Now, of course, illegal immigration, i.e. people who are coming across the boats, across the English Channel, is a different story. There is no doubt that Conservative voters are more concerned about this issue. There is no doubt that Conservative voters tend to back the government's Rwanda policy. Uh, Labour voters tend not to. So, you know, both parties, in a sense, are standing on ground that is a tomb with the eyes of their voters. But I think one thing the government have not taken account of is if you look to see, look at the relationship between whether Conservative 2019 voters say they're going to vote for the Conservatives again and link that to their perspective on illegal immigration. So is it the case that people who think that illegal immigration has gone up since 2019, who voted con uh, Conservative in 2019, are they um, less likely now to say they're going to vote Conservative than those people who don't think there's a problem with illegal immigration? And the answer to that question is that there isn't much difference. In other words, it is not clear that the, the yes, Conservative 2019 voters may be upset about illegal immigration, but it is not clear that that is a perception that is driving them away from the Conservatives. Whereas in contrast, you do the same analysis on uh, the evaluations of Conservative voters on um, perceptions of the state of the economy or perceptions of the state of the health service, then you can see very clearly that people who think the economy's got worse, who think the NHS is in a bad state, are markedly less likely to vote Conservative again than those who don't take that view. And I think the honest truth is, Yes, it, the Conservative politicians think this appeals to our base, but they are at risk at tilting at windmills on an issue where, in the end, there is, of course, widespread doubt about whether actually this can actually be stopped. So we've got net zero and we've got immigration. What are the other big issues pollsters are looking at with regards to the... Oh, look, I mean, the, well, I mean, the, the history of why the Conservative Party is in trouble is twofold. The first, of course, is Boris Johnson and the ethics of his uh, reign during Partygate. And that is still something that is hung around the Conservative Party's neck. 
And intriguingly, if you look at what happened in the wake of the failure of the Conservative Party, including the Prime Minister, to fall in behind the Privileges Committee report in June, uh, saying that indeed Mr Johnson had misled the House of Commons in their view and recommending his suspension, but of course he'd already resigned by then, you discover that pretty much all the progress that the Conservative Party had made in the last 12 months uh, in trying to narrow Labour's rather large lead uh, went out of the window. Um, so I think that was an indication that this is still an issue for voters. They, you know, can we trust what the Conservative Party say and what, and particularly what do we think of a party that in the end put into office somebody whose interpretation of the COVID regulations, which caused a lot of people to make very, very different, uh, different uh, uh, difficult decisions was largely at variance with pretty much everybody else's interpretation and who then basically didn't seem to was willing to tell the truth about what actually did uh, ha happen in Downing Street. That's still a legacy around the Conservatives' neck. The second legacy that they have around their neck is Liz Trust, the fiscal event, and the, uh, the economic fallout from that. And of course, the economic fallout isn't just what Liz Trust did. It's also uh, the fallout from the COVID pandemic, where quite a lot of the inflation uh, comes from. Uh, then, of course, to that was then added some of the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the honest truth is, um, you know, the UK is in a, a, a difficult, difficult fiscal situation. Living standards have been falling. And how and whether we get out of this, and in the end, that's about can we find the economic growth uh, that will help to improve living standards, help to improve the tax gate, and therefore perhaps help to deliver public services. That's bound to be a big question that the electorate will be looking to see answered. And I suspect at the moment we don't actually know what is the answer that either of our two largest parties are going to come up with. The Labour Party have been relatively reluctant during this parliament to come up with much in the way of specifics, although they seem to be gradually moving in that direction. And we are perhaps only now beginning to see a prime minister who's willing to begin to lay out what his policy direction might be in the last 12 months. We seem to be moving on from Sunak Mark 1, which is to provide stability, to perhaps Sunak Mark 2, in where he begins to try to make an, a wider impression on the electorate. But whether he succeeds or not, we have, of course, yet to wait and see. In Europe, we, we see parties in power that didn't exist a decade or two ago. Yep. Do the polls suggest we could see any change to the two-party race here? Well, I mean, it's worth reminding ourselves. Just a few months before the 2019 general election, we were asking ourselves whether or not the two-party system could survive. Mm. The Brexit party came first in the European elections in May of that year. Uh, the Liberal Democrats came second. The combined tally for the Conservatives and the Labour Party for a while was no more than 50%. They really looked as though Brexit was indeed going to disrupt our party system. And then along came Boris Johnson, who managed to get the Leave voters all behind him. He squashed the Brexit party vote. And meanwhile, the Labour Party managed to get back a lot of the votes they'd lost to Liberal Democrats. And by 2019, um, actually, um, none of the other parties made much of an impact. But that, I, th I think there was no guarantee of that happening. Um, but for Boris Johnson becoming prime minister and achieving what he did, it may well be that the two-party system would have looked a lot weaker than it did. Um, the Liberal Democrats, of course, are still suffering the legacy of the decision to go into coalition with the Conservative Party in the face of which they did a major vote fast on the issue of tuition fees, for which a lot of people have found it quite difficult to uh, forgive them. 
And they've not made much progress in this parliament. They are running in the polls at the moment about 11%. That's slightly below what they got at the last election. So despite the Conservatives' difficulties, we're certainly not seeing the Liberal Democrats prospering. On the other hand, the Greens, record performance in the local elections in May, running at around 6% in the polls, and they're definitely taking some voters off Labour as well as the Liberal Democrats. So the, the other counterpoint to on the night when um, the Conservatives managed to defend the Uxbridge seat seemingly on the back of their local campaign about the extension of the Ules scheme into outer London boroughs like Hillingdon, of which Uxbridge is part. And people didn't notice on the same time the Greens put in a record by-election performance in the Somerton and Froome by-election, which of course the Liberal Democrats uh, won fairly spectacularly. And they're, you know, they are running at around 6%. Now the question is, will they be able to sustain that? In election campaign, how many seats will they fight, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And of course, they've now got to try to defend Caroline Lucas's Brighton seat with Caroline no longer standing. Reform UK, well, um, still not that well known, but that indeed is the refuge to which some disenchanted Conservative voters have gone. Um, they're running again also at about 6% in the polls. Now, there's some argument about given their performance in by elections, is that an exaggeration? Who knows? But at the moment, around 12% of those people who voted Leave in 2016 are now saying they're inclined to vote for a firmer uh, anti-EU party. So those, the challenges are there, but how they will play out is inevitably uh, still relatively uncertain. How much of a key battleground will Scotland be? Perhaps much more of a battleground than we thought 12 months ago. But in the end, how it's going to pan out, much more difficult uh, to tell. I mean, the first thing to say, I mean, there is no doubt that the, the Labour Party has enjoyed something revival north of the border. But the original foundations of that revival are frankly pretty much the same foundations as those south of the border, i.e. one Boris Johnson and Partygate and two Liz Truss and uh, the fallout from her fiscal event. The, the Labour Party literally began to overtake the Conservatives in the polls in Scotland shortly after Partygate. Um, they then managed to become second in votes in the 2022 local elections in Scotland. They then made a further advance to around the high 20s in the polls in Scotland in the wake of the Liz Truss event. So the original foundations of Labour is, is not the decline in uh, SNP support. It is them getting more unionists, including Conservative voters, backing them because of disenchantment with the UK government on that side of the fence. Um, that in itself would have been enough, even with the SNP doing more or less as well as they did in 2019, for their party to pick up some seats off the SNP, including indeed perhaps Rutherglen, but then the SNP would probably also take some seats off the Conservatives and they might end up roughly, you know, uh, whatever they lose to Labour they get. And that therefore Labour's spoils would be relatively limited. What's happened in the wake of the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon and the ensuing leadership contest is indeed support for the SNP has gone down. It's still ahead of Labour in the polls, maybe around three percentage points or so. Um, and by the way, support for independence has not gone down, but it does mean that the Labour Party are now picking up some of the support from people who voted for the SNP in 2019 and who say they would still vote yes in an independence referendum, but now perhaps because of their, di their disenchantment in the wake of the SNP leadership contest, and indeed the relative unpopularity of Humza Yusuf as, as their new leader. 
uh, and minded to vote for their party. Now, then you, what you then have to understand is that once it gets fairly tight between the SNP and Labour, you have to remember the SNP's vote is geographically very evenly spread. Now, um, therefore, once Labour are not that far behind, given Labour's votes more geographically concentrated, they're going to start overtaking the SNP in quite a lot of places. Um, and indeed, if the Labour Party were ever to overtake the SNP in, in terms of vote share, they would pick up quite a lot of seats. But conversely, if, Labour, if the SNP just widen the lead a modest amount from where we are at the moment, without necessarily going back to where they were in 2015, all of a sudden the Labour spo uh, spoils will look much more modest. So it's all potentially very sensitive to quite small movements in the votes. And that's why, in the end, what we're looking for in the Rutherglen by-election is not really who wins, because frankly, if Sakir Starmer cannot win a seat now that Jeremy Corbyn managed to win in 2017, he's got a wee bit of a problem north of the border. But rather, how well do Labour win? Do they, uh, does the extent of the swing from the SNP to Labour, it, does that suggest that the message of the opinion polls about the extent of the SNP decline and the extent of Labour's increase is right or not? You mentioned Scottish independence. Mm -hmm. What do the polls suggest would happen if there is a vote anytime soon? Well, they suggested at the moment probably um, the no side would win, but not by very much. Um, on average at the moment, um, once you leave aside the don't knows, you're looking at about 52, 53% support for no, 47, 48% for yes. Um, so it's still running somewhat higher support for independence than was registered in the 2014 Scottish independence election. Um, but the important thing to realise, it's not just that support for independence is a bit higher, but both the intellectual substance of the debate and the character support for our independence has been changed by Brexit. Um, one of the ironies of the 2014 Scottish independence referendum is that the parties on both sides of the debate spent an awful long time arguing about whether an independent Scotland could or could not be a continuing member of the European Union. And in true pantomime fashion, the Unionist side said, oh no, you can't, and the Yes side said, oh yes, we can. They were both wasting their time because there was no relationship at all between whether or not people voted yes or no and their attitude towards the European Union because there's always been an element of pro-independence, pro-SNP support that basically take the view that What's the point of liberating ourselves from London only to put ourselves into chains with Brussels? If we come forward to the 2016 Brexit referendum, there was no relationship between how people voted in 2016, remain or leave, and how they'd voted in 2014, yes or no. But since uh, that Brexit referendum, basically people who are in favour of being inside the European Union have moved in favour of independence those who are happy to be outside the European Union have moved in the opposite direction. So there is now a link between these two things, um, and it does therefore mean that the, the, the thing is intertwined. And then again, then we also have to remember is that the question that Scotland would face, at least in current circumstances, we do have a referendum anytime soon, is not simply whether you want to be inside or outside the UK, it's do you want to be inside the UK but outside the European Union, or do you want to be inside the EU, but outside the UK. And that raises a whole series of trade-offs that weren't discussed in 2014. And in a sense, one of the big failures of the nationalist movement in the last 12 months is they've not really got that debate started. Ultimately, what they need to do if they're going to succeed is they have to craft 
the argument as to why they think in this now very different choice, Scotland would be better off, um, and to win that argument and thereby force the unionists to respond. And that's not at the moment what they've managed to achieve. So, yes, they're, they've got a, quite a good baseline, but it's not good enough. And I think there is now a realisation in the nationalist movement that if they're ever going to get a referendum, if it's, and if it's ever going to happen, the first thing they have to do is to get support for yes well above the level that it is at even now. Taking a step back, in, in recent years, pulses took a bit of a hit, yeah. obviously with uh, Brexit and also with the Trump predictions. Uh, what lessons were learned from what happened there? Well, um, let's unravel a few things here. Um, people tend to forget that a majority of the opinion polls that were published during the referendum campaign in 2016 said that Leave were ahead. A week before polling day, virtually all the polls had Leave ahead. What is true is that there was a bit of a movement seemingly back to remain, which some people thought uh, was to do with the, the death of the, the, the Labour MP, the assassination of Labour MP at that point. Um, um, and, then, and then people kind of extrapolated that and said, ah, OK, people are coming to their senses. They are realising that Brexit would be a risk. It's fine. Remain is going to win. E ignoring the fact that even then, even in the final polls, Two of them had leave ahead, although four of them had remain ahead. So people misremember what the polls said during Brexit. Yes, they were, in the end, on average, two pro-remain, but not to the extent and on the scale that people remember. And anybody who looked at those polls and was looking at them carefully knew there was a fairly good chance that leave was going to win the referendum. On Trump, yes, the polls have got a, a, a certain amount of criticism, particularly uh, not so much uh, the, the election that Trump won, but the one that he lost, where uh, you know, uh, certainly people feel that uh, Trump, uh, uh, the, the, the Biden's lead, lead was not as great as people thought it was going to be. Um, but again, we actually remember, again, if you use the polls sensibly, what they told us exactly, which were the states that were, you know, there about a dozen states who would make a difference. They told you pretty much exactly what they were, which were the toss-up states, and in pretty much all of those toss-up states in the end, the outcome was uh, fairly close. But that's not to say that the polls don't have issues and difficulties. The real problem in the UK, at least, was the 2015 general election. That's when the polls um, underestimated the Conservatives, overestimated Labour, and that's tended to be a, a tendency um, in, the, uh, in, the, um, in, the, in the history of polling in the UK. Now, what emerged out of that when there was an inquiry? And there were all sorts of fashionable theories about that, and not least the, the favourite one amongst journalists is shy toys, people telling pollsters lie. But I'm sorry, it was much more prosaic than that. You know what? Why were the polls too pro-Labour? Because they had too many Labour voters in them. But then you need to understand why. The reason why they, at least one crucial reason why they had too many Labour voters in them, is that one of the things that's happened in our politics is that there is now a big alignment between age and how people vote. The Labour Party is much more popular amongst younger people than it is amongst older, older people. Right? Now, one of the things that's always been true and is still true is that younger people are less likely to turn out and vote. So given that's the case and given the link between age and how people, the party for which people vote, you then got to ac estimate accurately the difference in turnout between younger people and older people. 
because otherwise, while it may be the case that the younger people whom you interview in your polls say they're going to vote Labour and they do go and vote Labour, they're not necessarily typical of their peers because others of those peers who might be sympathetic to Labour just aren't going to make it to the polling station. So you're therefore at risk of overestimating Labour. And that's basically a crucial lesson the polls just took away from 2015. Now then you come to 2017 and they make the opposite mistake. They actually underestimate uh, Labour's position and of course Theresa May didn't get the majority that she was expecting. Now there the problem is that basically the pollsters tried to correct what happened in 2015 by introducing all sorts of adjustments. And the problem is they put these adjustments on the top of what they were already doing and they over egged the pudding. So, and if you actually look at their estimate of what had happened in the 2015 election, uh, their polls were looking to be too heavy in terms of um, uh, uh, conservative voters. So in 2019, they basically stopped doing that. In the meantime, the polls have, pollsters have tried to make more effort into getting hold of people who aren't so interested in politics and who therefore might be less likely to turn out. But of course, this is not easy because if you ask people to fill in polls about politics, if you aren't interested in politics, you kind of say, well, I don't really want to do this, thank you very much. So that, that, that's an inevitable challenge. Um, but the pollsters, not perfect, but pretty good in 2019. And of course, yes, they have their fingers crossed that they will get it reasonably right in uh, 2024. Now, of course, the honest truth is, if the polls are right, that Labour are a long way ahead, even if in the end Labour don't prove to be quite such a long way ahead, but they still win comfortably, nobody will notice if the polls do overestimate Labour's support. Actually, that's what happened in 1997. The polls overestimated Labour's support, but because Labour got a majority of 176, nobody noticed. Um, so in the end, you have to remember that the judgment that people cast on these things is, do you get the winner right? Um, that's much more difficult when the position is close than when you've got an election where one party uh, uh, has a chance of winning by a landslide. And now uh, whether or not we will be in that territory in 12 months' time, who knows? Finally, I was just hoping to understand a bit the, the workings behind all this polling. Mm -hmm. What's the gold standard for it now? Is it people on the phone or has technology changed how you do it? Uh, no, no. I mean, well, we can talk about whether it's a gold standard or not. The most common practice is for uh, uh, opinion polls to be conducted over the internet. Um, now, some companies like YouGov maintain their own panels of people uh, whom they've recruited um, and they've made efforts to try to get people of you know, all sorts of background and uh, differences um, and a political representative and that their polls are administered to them. But you know, these are people in the end who have in, been encouraged, cajoled, persuaded to sign up and say, yeah, I'll do your surveys and you know, there's a bit of recompense uh, at the end. Other companies are, I mean, there are now companies out there who basically recruit panels of people who are willing to answer uh, polls of all sorts, you know, just, not just about politics polls, but about Az and Domo or Marks and Spencer and John Lewis, or, you know, all, all, all the options. Um, and, they, and they will buy, buy samples in. Uh, so that's the most common practice. Now, some companies concerned about the representativeness of the folk who sign up in advance to willing to do polls, try to do some emulation of, of random sampling by posting adverts on websites that have nothing to do with policy and saying, you know, by the way, would you like to do this policy? What we call river sampling, trying to get a sample of people who are surfing the web. There's a bit of that going on. Um, 
One company, Ipsos, always does its polls of voting intention, at least, by telephone still, random digit dialing, um, although it does other political polling um, over the internet uh, using a variety of methods. Um, uh, there's another company, Servation, that also sometimes does its t uh, polling by telephone, particularly in the, height of, uh, the heat of a general election, not necessarily outside of that. And that often is, again, using another a, a database of people who, again, have been contacted in advance, um, but from a different source, and where, again, that, you know, Servation take the view, if you're really trying to get the election right, uh, that, as it were, sampling that group of people but interviewing them by telephone is better. So there is some diversity, and I take the view that's a good thing. And, of course, we've seen quite a lot of few new companies enter the industry even since 2019, the costs of entry are now much lower because uh, you can do it over the internet. You don't even have to have your own panel. We'll see which of them do well and which of them don't do, don't do so well. There, is, there are some consistent differences between them. Um, so the industry keeps on moving on, but there is no doubt that doing it over the internet in one way or another has become the dominant mode, not least, of course, because it's relatively cheap. Mm -hmm. So technology's made a massive difference. Indeed, indeed. Whereas, you know, you only have to go back 20 years where it was mostly being done by the telephone. Go back 20 years before that, it was mostly done by interviewers knocking on people's doors. Sure. So John Curtis, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're welcome.